0: Yeah, well, I was famously quoted um, when I spoke to uh, Jason Richardson one day and I said, yep, I said, Chautauqua would be in the back of the bus licking windows. Now I look back and all these trainers were on the back of the bus <laughs> licking windows and Chautauqua was
1: driving the bus. <laughs> sports fans and welcome to Quinny's Cult Heroes, thanks to the Ladbrokes Listen Network. Our special guest today, a superstar horse trainer and larger-than-life racing personality, a warm welcome to Wayne Hawkes. Morning Mr. Quinn, how are you? You look a little nervous after that introduction, you thought I was going to give you a little clip to start (laughs) the show. With you, I never know what's uh, what's around the corner. But thanks for having me. No, thank you for being here. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about your journey, some of the superstars you've trained along the way. So why don't we take it back to when you were a young fella? Your dad John was a trainer over in Adelaide. What were those early days like? And what do you remember about horse racing? Yeah, look, um, to be fair,
0: the stables were in the backyard. Michael's bedroom backed onto the uh, what we what we uh, crowned the steel yards in Adelaide. They had steel, uh, big steel gates, and you'd hear the horse literally pouring like this during the middle of the night. And Michael'd get the wall and bang on the wall, <laughs> and you know, especially the horses finished uh, eating their feed and banging the feed bin around. So they were in the they were literally in the backyard. It was all around us about five blocks of land, and Mum would hang the clothes out and heard all the colourful language, and it was all a bit of. Uh, was all uh, was all good uh, good banter but was great growing up in Adelaide and I can remember going to the races when I was nine ten years of age and helping my father and his boss was a bloke called Sid Carter and if Dad was in the state with a horse uh, I'd go with Uncle Sid we called him and help him saddle up horses and that's unfortunately the uh, the ohH s work cover side that that's a disadvantage now to every industry. What I was doing as a kid at nine and 10 years of age, you can't do that now because you need to be licensed to get in there. And I think you need to be nearly 15 to be able to get a strapper's license.
1: So we say people are born into something. You were literally born into horse racing. Your house was the horse racing stable. So you went in the backyard and you'd see horses. It's literally all you ever knew. I was uh, I was born in 71 and
0: dad gave up training in 72, I think it was. So he- Trained and owned his first winner for my uh, grandparents, his his father and mother-in-law. So, uh, yeah, he was all, he was a jockey, my father, and he was six years of age and he was riding horses down the beach. Mm. You think of someone you know that's six years of age. He was down at Glenelg Beach and they used to ride from Glenelg down to Brighton Beach and back to Glenelg Beach and then they'd have a... Then they'd have a wade in the, uh, I think they call it rushing, where you'd put the horses in the water and the horses would rush through the water and they, the quote was rushing. Then they'd give the horses a sand roll on the, uh, the Glenel Beach. Then they'd put the saddle back on the horses and then ride them home and we were right near, if anyone knows Adelaide, we were right near the Morford Arms pub. So it was about a kilometre and a half from, uh, from Glenelg Beach back down to, uh, to home.
1: And you would have done some riding throughout your early part of your career, and when you started off training as well. How did you go when you were throwing your leg over them?
0: Um, yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't too good. I um, I, uh, I gave up um, thirty eight kilos ago from, <laughs> uh, from trying to from trying to to ride. I uh, I wasn't that good at school, and because uh, I just didn't care. And to be honest, I was going to set up the uh, the biggest horse float company in the in the country, which I never ever got to do. But that was my childhood dream. And Michael was going to be my brother was going to be a mechanic, and we were going to have the biggest horse float company in, the, in Australia. And from uh, all of my high school years, all my school holidays were spent at Golden's Horse Transport, and I used to go around there and uh, drive the trucks and go with all the all the drivers. And Dad was great because he never ever pushed. Me to do anything because he saw too many young kids pushed too hard and too fast in the racing industry and they turned their nose up at it. So, Dad never ever pushed and it was the middle of year twelve. I remember getting six percent for my accountants uh, accountancy exam, and um, so what I what happened was I just I remember clearly to this day they said walk in. You just sit down and if you finish early, you can just get on your, uh, it was Pac-Man or something back in that, Super Mario Brothers, back in the Space Invaders, back in those days. So I walked in, signed my name on the top, went the multiple choice, went A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, turned the paper over, put my hand up and started playing games. Well, we were six minutes in and all of a sudden, you know, there was, there was 100 kids in the gymnasium. Well, who, who gets kicked out? It was me. And I did everything right. I got kicked out and the teacher went berserk. I said, "But what did I do wrong? You told me to put our name on there. When you finished, turn the paper over and sit there and start uh, start you know playing your game. It was way before mobile phones playing the game, and so I got kicked out. I got six percent for my accountant's exam in the middle of year twelve. Mum thought it was probably time I uh, I left school. So I went and did a horse husbandry course at uh, which is now Magic Millions, and I uh, I worked there for um, for. What did I do? I, no, I was there for six months, and I got I learned I learned pretty much learned to ride because I really wasn't didn't have a pony at home because we had thirty one stables at Cliff Street, Glengarry near Morfaville,
1: and there was never any room for the pony. So then, what happens after that? Your dad's going really well in Adelaide, but he's run second seven times to Colin Hayes in the Adelaide Premiership. And then you jump ship and go and work for Lindsay Park. Correct. You're well-researched, you are.
0: So what happened was was that uh, I did this horse husbandry course and it came time to go and do two weeks' work experience. So Dad asked Colin's son, David, who was the Adelaide foreman with uh, Tony McAvoy was his understudy, and Dad asked David Hayes whether I could go and uh, work up there for two weeks. So two weeks turned into about 11 weeks. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite 16 uh, year old up there. I remember it was, it was the year Atillac had won the, uh, won the Melbourne Cup. I remember watching the Melbourne Cup from, uh, from Lindsay Park and they had great horses like uh, military plume and wrap around was a baby and there were some great years uh, up there. So I think I, la- yeah, I think I lasted 11, 11 weeks. I didn't
1: quite get past my three months probationary. So what happened at the end of the 11 weeks? Um, what happened in the, end of the 11 weeks I got the sack? They sacked you. What happened? Who sacked
0: you? Tony McAvoy, actually. Tony McAvoy? Tony McAvoy sacked me. How did that happen? Tony McAvoy (laughs) sacked me. What happened was, uh, I can say it now, because uh, Colin Hayes is no longer with us, but he didn't have any idea that I was working there, so I went up. He, he, he obviously went to Melbourne every year for the spring and just stayed there the whole spring. So I was working at Lindsay Park. As I said, Atulaka won the Melbourne Cup that year. He came back a week or so later and uh, drove in his little Subaru and nearly drove into the wall when he saw that John Hawke's son was uh, riding out on one of, his, uh, one of his green two-year-olds. So never forget it. It was about three days in and I'll I'll be blunt, can I be blunt here? Yes. Shitting myself when uh, Colin Hayes pulled up and said, jump off that horse, son, because I'd seen him from when I was this big all the way through at the races, but – all of a sudden, I was working for the great man. And he said, uh, What you do is, he said, When you, I watched you get on that horse. He said, Don't ever get on a horse like that again because it could pelt you and, you know, throw you off and da 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 da. And this is how he said it. What you do, he said, You get in alongside its shoulder by the brand. He said, Put your ass into the horse's shoulder. I said, Why is that? He said, Because if it's close, it's like getting a punch from back here or a punch from here. You'd rather it from here. And I couldn't believe he said, "Put your ass into the into the side of the horse," because I'd never heard the great man swear. His name was Sugar Lips, and so to hear Colin Hayes giving me a lace down, I was uh, not quite sure how it went. I was out on the feed run that afternoon, and uh, that's when Colin must have said, uh, "Tony, this is you want to be a boss. This is what you need to do." So Tony uh, said that the Queen's nephew and great uncle Harold was coming out from Europe, and I had to go. So he said, "We'll give you a week's notice," and. David Hayes uh, got uh, got engaged, and he had a brand new Rolex watch on from uh, Shake Hamden back in the day. They chucked him in the swimming pool, clothes and all. So the the uh, what happened back there in the day at Lindsay Park? When you left, they had to leave you with a winner. So I said to Tony McAvoy, "I'll do the square off." I said, "No problems about leaving. I was coming here for two weeks." I'm not going to stay. F- I'm not going to stay for another week because these boys will just uh, string me up, you know, string me up by me uh, by my legs, so to speak, and they roll and roll and tar you. And back in the day, you just did all that sort of stuff and threw you in the sawdust pit and threw you in the swimming pool. And oh, says you're not allowed to do that anymore. So he said to me, if you want to go sneak out the back door, you generally owe me one. So long-winded. Tony McAvoy sacked me, and I've never forgotten Tony.
1: But did he sack you because? of your surname, did yep. th- yeah, they just didn't want someone from the rival camp in their team.
0: Pretty much, yeah. As you said, Dad had run second to Colin uh, seven years and the third trainer there was Len Smith and it was between sort of Len Smith and my father who'd run second and third to Colin Hayes. So, yeah, I suppose it would be like as if um, I walked into my stable and Kieran Maher's son or Chris Wallace's son was in the stable and I knew nothing about it, so... But you know, at the end of the day, I was grateful to go to Lindsay Park and to uh, get some
1: experience. Uh, experience there have those rivalries diluted a little bit over the years? Because we hear about the great racing rivals in the nineties, and it was like tribalism, especially in the Sydney. 80s. This was actually yeah, the eighties yeah. and nineties. Is it a little bit softer these days? I think so. Probably, probably
0: because we're a bit more national, and the smallest bloke can have the best horse, and he'll travel. Whereas we did obviously travel back in the day, but it was a bit more state by state stuff. So. You used to be in Adelaide, and you'd look at um, Gra- uh, Graham Big Neville Big, should I say? You know, trying to take on Tommy Smith, and then you had all the great Melbourne trainers. And then I was, I was just a kid in Adelaide doing my bit, and you only ever got to see them on uh, on TV. But yeah, there were there were some great
1: rivalries, and obviously the the biggest three was TJ Bart and CS. And I read after your time at Lindsay Park that you said you took in ten percent of what you should have because you spent too much time drinking and chasing women.
0: Um. Did I say that? That's probably, I can't deny that because that sounds about, uh, sounds about <laughs> right, yes. It was the pub there called the Bra House and uh, we did our best work on a Saturday night after hours there. So 16 and a half at the pub there, it was, uh, it was good fun. And Tony McAvoy was, um, would get there on a Saturday night. You'd get over for the races at Moorfield and you'd get there on a Saturday night and we'd have a few jars. And Barry was the publican. I think it was, his name was Barry and he was a, he was a hell of a good fella. Hell of a good fella, so They didn't ask for ID back in those <laughs> days. I, I, I was drinking Black Russians. That was vodka and Kahlua and Coke. Ooh. I reckon I'd throw up if I had one of them right now. But that's how I got my uh, started on the alcohol days. That would put
1: hairs on your chest. And not long after that, the team went to Melbourne, relocated to Flemington. Talk to us about that. Well, I, I was. Uh, I had finished at Lindsay Park and. I wasn't
0: actually working. I was uh, work experiencing because I was living at home and Dad bought me a car and was uh, was like as if I was still going to school and I went with the vet, the farrier, the dentist, the Cairo, and I did all this for about 12-odd months. And he then said, I want you to go and work at Abcos. And Abcos is now Magic Millions Adelaide. He said, I want you to go and work under Adrian Hancock and David Coles. And I went there. And in that time, that's when, uh, that's when Dad got the offer to go to Melbourne and um, Murr Brown was a golden breed hang 10. He had some great horses back in the day and he he went to a man named Bob LaPointe and Bob LaPointe owned Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Sizzler, Lone Star in the latter years and they were setting up a conglomerate in Melbourne and it was Bob LaPointe, Robert Sangster, Norman Carline, he owned Military Plume and so forth and then there was another famous uh, pair of brothers named Jack and Bob Ingham. So the four of those guys uh, set up uh, set up the stable in Melbourne, and my father uh, headed that uh,
1: establishment. And that was the start of something very, very special. Some of the absolute superstars that racing fans know in those cerise colours. It must have been a very exciting time.
0: Yeah, well, it was sort of um, the first couple of years. It wasn't it wasn't outstanding because we didn't probably get the support that we'd uh, we'd hoped and. Inghams had always sent down probably the nicest horses. They, they were they were homebreds, but they were really really good sorts. And one of the great great horses that we had, and he wasn't the best horse by a long shot. But one was Waikikamukau, and uh, Waikikamukau was pretty famous just for his uh, just for his namesake. And he had a strapper back then named Simon Zara. Simon Zara loved uh, loved Mukuau, and so we uh, yeah, Dad cut his teeth there in Melbourne, and had obviously had won a lot of Group Ones in Melbourne, and. Uh, it you know, was, was a bit of a lean stretch for three or four years and in Sydney, Brian Mayfield-Smith was winning a premiership with Robert Sangster and Bob LaPointe and Jack and Bob Ingham had set up this massive empire at Warwick Farm and it wasn't quite going how they wanted. So Dad said, I'm not going to the races tomorrow. You'll have to go. I said, okay, fair enough. And I got home for the race and said to Mum, where's Dad? He said he was staying home work, and She said, oh, he went to lunch. I said Mum, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, <laughs> he doesn't uh, he doesn't do lunches. I said, Where's he going? She said, oh, don't worry about it. Then the phone rings and she runs down the stables and says, Can you get to Rabbit Airport, which was just the uh, Epsom Training Centre? Can you go and pick up Dad? I said, Where is he? She said, Well, if you I dropped him off, and she said, If you drive into the Rabbit, you go all the way down to the airport on the left hand side, there's a hangar and just hang around out the front there. This was pre mobile phone days, and uh, you'll uh, he'll be around soon. I didn't know what was going on, so it was like a scene out of Pretty Woman when Richard Gere came running back with Julia Roberts. This lair jet just comes screaming in at a thousand true at a thousand miles an hour. John Hawks gets out the lair jet. It was about a twelve seat jet. Thanks, boys, thanks for the ride. Great lunch. See ya boys. Thank you. Door closed. I'm just standing there gobsmacked going, What's what's going on here? Got in the car and I said, Where have you been? He said, Lunch. I said, lunch where? He said, none of your business. <laughs> so it was a quiet trip back to the uh, stables and <laughs> back down the stables I went and Dad walked inside and obviously spoke to Mum and after dinner he sat down with uh, with Michael and I and said that he'd been to lunch with Jack and Bob Ingham in Sydney at their head office at uh, Northumberland Street, uh, Liverpool and that approached him to uh, take on the whole of their uh, their great empire and I said, "What'd you say?" He said, "Well, I said I'd go home and speak to my wife, but I'd already told him yes, just quietly." <laughs> so he he, uh, he said, "No, it's something I want to do." And he just and he told me, he said, I "Only asked." I said, "Just for anything?" He said, "Yep." He said, "I asked for one thing." He didn't want to drive the Ford Fairlane that was the company car because he'd always been a Mercedes Benz man and didn't drink, didn't smoke, but always loved driving a nice car. That was his only, uh, only cherry vice. on top. His only vice and. And the other thing was that he said, I want you to back me. If you back me all the way home, I promise you we'll get the job done. So what did
1: that mean changing logistically for you and your team? Well, what had happened, uh, Gerald Ryan
0: was dad's first foreman in Melbourne. And when Gerald had left and gone to work for David Moody at Hobson's Lodge, that's when I left Magic Millions and went to Melbourne and worked for dad and quite amazing when you look back at, um, you know, some of the people that were there, Matthew Highland, the boss of the Jockeys Association, and his brother Chris, and uh, Simon Zara, Matthew Ellerton, and I've missed it, probably a stack, of other, a stack of other people, but they were all working at the stable, and and uh, yeah, so mum and dad and my brother moved to Sydney, and they uh, they had to go and stay at the Sunnybrook Travel Lodge on the Sunday, and what we'd done for three or four weeks, it was before Sky Channel and, and Racing.com, obviously, and we used to have to run down the TAB at Morty Alec and we were just watching every single race in Sydney of Vingham's uh, of horses. Dad was just trying to get his head around it and I remember they went up on the Sunday. Saturday night they went after uh, Moonee Valley races. Dad went to Moonee Valley and I took them to the airport and they were gone. So I uh, I rang Ma- – Michael rang me on the Sunday and, gee, Michael would have only been 16 or 17, I suppose, and I said, what's it like? He said – you imagine a barn door that's open with about 40 horses in a row with their heads all sticking out. He said, OMG. So yeah, I yeah. couldn't uh, couldn't believe how big this uh, setup was.
1: So it was a, a whirlwind couple of years going from Adelaide and then to Melbourne and then up to Sydney. And that really is when John Hawks took the next step as an elite trainer. Yeah, he did. I mean, <clears throat> excuse
0: me, to be fair, I mean, he was uh, 23 years of age in Adelaide. He had three horses in work, John Hawks, three only, and he quinella the VRC Oaks with three horses in work at 23 years of age. Incidentally, he thought the second horse had beat the winner, but uh, <laughs> I think he backed the second horse. But, yeah, so a 23-year-old kid from Adelaide, quinnelling a VRC Oaks with three horses in work, quite uh, quite amazing. Then he won a Perth Cup and it sort of went on from there. But, the uh, yeah, we uh, got to Sydney and it just all started. It just all just ramped up and there was 110 horses in work. The former's name was Peter Snowden. He was there, and uh, Greg Hickman, and there were just, you know, Pierrata he trained, and there were just so many. I suppose in football terms, he's a bit like Kevin Sheedy and, uh, you know, someone like that, that all just the assistant coaches went on to be some uh, some great uh, footy personalities. And Dad had, however, had a lot of people come through that worked under him, but it was just a phenomenon. I mean, to have 270 yearlings just rolling through the door every year, and he, uh, he works seven days a week. And, you know, Sunday was a quiet day. He probably put in about eight hours on a Sunday. So not drinking,
1: not smoking, not going out certainly uh, certainly did help. It's good that his son's making up for that. Yeah, Mike was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> now, not long after the relocation, a couple of years down the track, it all changes. A horse that's very special in the hearts and minds of all racing fans, Octagonal comes along. Talk to us about the big O. Yeah, I, I didn't
0: have the privilege of going to uh, to New Zealand for the sales and On the way over, Jack Ingham said to my father, Zabeel's first year, loved him as a racehorse, CSAs thought he was great, I want to buy a Zabeel. And Dad said, well, at the end of the day, your rule was, Jack, you don't buy unproven horses because your line was we go back three years later and we'll we'll pay three times as much. So he said, yep, but he said, I want a Zabeel. Dad said, well, if we're going to buy a Zabeel, we'll buy the best one. So the best one was, uh, you know, was lot whatever it was, and Dad didn't even. He said he said to me, I didn't even know what it was. It was one of Cambridge Studs, and just said, "What is that horse over there?" And looked it up, and it was a Zabeel, out of uh, out of eight carat and he turned to Jack Ingham and just said, "That's on the plane. Don't care about the rest. We've got to uh, we've got to secure him because I don't get to buy horses like this every day. In fact, I don't ever." And when I'm standing next to a billionaire, I know we could afford it, and it's the only one on the plane. So he was two hundred and ten thousand. Jack Eastgate, John Marr were underbidder and octagonal was uh, was octagonal, and he won his first start. Um, I think it was Rose Hill, and I clearly remember it. I was at the Kembla Grange turnoff going to Kembla Grange races, and he and he, uh, he he won by three and three quarter lengths, pulling up, and I remember screaming my head off. As he uh, as as I went off the uh, the uh, not not the side of the road off the uh, off the exit at uh, Kembla Lagrange and he pulled up very shinsor after that.
1: So you knew from day dot it was very special, and it was a wonderful time for Australian racing. He had some great racetrack rivals, so I think it is a period that people look back on with a lot of nostalgia. Yeah, I think so.
0: You know, like he came back, and um, and I, I clearly remember this, and this is a good little yarn that no one knows. I. Uh, Got to on Thursday night and, and he was in the Todman Slipper Stakes and Dad said, I reckon this thing will win the Slipper. I said, what? He said, you heard me. I said, you reckon this horse will win the Slipper? He said, yep. I said, well, he's going to win the Slipper. he win on Saturday. He goes, too right he will. I said, but this thing from New Zealand's coming over called Our Mays Gay. He said, our who, I don't care what it is. I said, no, nah, it's not our who. He goes, yeah, our who I don't care, Is in I don't care who it is, he won't be getting beat on Saturday. So I went down on Friday to the ANZ Bank, I banked with it at the time, and Northumberland Street down there at um, Liverpool, I withdrew $2,000. So back in 1993 or 4, I think it was, it was a lot of money. I was getting paid about $200. I withdrew $2,000. So I went to the races and I had a uh, thousand sixteens of him in the Golden Slipper and I had 1,000 about eight, 8 or 9 to 1 it was in the Todman. And he beat our maze Gate by the proverbial bob of the head and so I had a ticket there riding for uh, 16,000 to one. So probably, I don't know whether I could have gone and cashed in. They didn't have those sort no, of I don't uh, think so. bonuses back <laughs> in those days. And if anyone can remember the, uh, the Octagonal race, it was, uh, for me, after the race, it was like this. The, uh, Just
1: recap for the listeners. What happened then after that for Golden Slipper Day? After Golden Slipper Day? Yeah.
0: Well, he went, uh, he then won the uh, Sires Produce and then he got beaten in the Champagne he went to the paddock he came back and the nemesis was there again now Maze Kay in the corfield guineas and dad said he won't get beat he got beat he ran third so dad hummed and hard for days about whether to spell him or run him in the cox plate and he said i'm going to run the horse in the cox plate and he ran in the cox plate and it took to uh, it took mahogany to uh, to all but run him down and after the race uh, john hawks had his tom cruise sunglasses on and and it wouldn't take him off, and uh, the only reason he didn't take him off because he had a tear in his eye, and that was a day he said, this is the first champion that I've ever trained. And that had a lot of weight, obviously, because uh, John Hawks had never he, – he wouldn't call a great horse a great horse. He'd say, yeah, he's okay. He's just okay. I'll let the horses do the talking. Where were you Cox Plate Day? Cox Plate Day, I was there. That was uh, – gee, there's a couple of stories here. Cox Plate was there. We had three runners Cox Plate Day. Flavor was in the two-year-old race. He won. Dono was in the Amy Vars, the lead-up the derby. He won. And the third runner was uh, was the big O, and he won. My brother was uh, – where was he? He was working at the Stables in Sydney, and he had the weekend off. And he came down to Melbourne. And my brother watched the Octagon when the Cox played, standing on, you know, your 4 foot high household, three-foot-eye household wheelie bin at the 200-metre mark. Him and his best mate were standing on the wheelie bin. We had uh, seven winners that day, and uh, they just – Everything just won everywhere. I think mean, Booth won in Brisbane and uh, we won a silver slipper with uh, Strategic's little brother. I can't think of his name. He went to Stud, but it was that long ago. But uh, we had seven winners that day. And I remember my brother walked up and he said, here, and he gave me all this money that was the, was was not, not the plastic money today, it was all the scrunched up money. Every pocket and every sock, sock, was covered and full of money, and he said, here, just grab this. I have no idea what my brother won that day, but um, I do know he rang his girlfriend in Sydney at the time, and it's not his wife now. It was his girlfriend and said, go to the airport, get on 1A Qantas and get your backside to Melbourne. It's our night tonight. So he did that. She came down. We went out, and um, I remember where we were. I can't remember the name of the place, and I looked outside, and it was daylight Sunday morning. <laughs> it was dead said It was daylight, and I said, hey. Hey, look outside. We've got to go. It was daylight saving, so the sun was up uh, early, but uh, we were driving home uh, down the PN Highway down to Epsom Morning and old mate was a racing fan and he said, do you mind if I put, uh, it was RSN in the day, he saw Sport Nine Two Seven. he said, do you mind if I put the radio on? I said, sure, no problems. Yes, folks, and here's Andrew Bensley live at uh, Carbine Lodge at um, Epsom. Yep, and I've just seen uh, the big O and he's pulled up fine and well and I'm going, whew, how good's that? Because <laughs> I knew Dad was there, you see, so it was no big deal. Yep, yeah, he's, he's well and uh, yep, back to you in the studio. It was worse to that effect. What had happened was after Andrew Bensley had left, he went out the front and had a pick on the nature strip. This taxi went past and backfired because obviously the cars probably aren't built the same way they are back then, and it genuinely backfired, he ran backwards at a 1,000 miles an hour and old mate let go of him because he was going to run into the cab or let go of him. So he let go of the horse and he ran around the corner to where Rick or Lacey stables, and uh, this is the morning after Cox Plate and someone (laughs) grabbed him and the strapper was running around the corner chasing this horse, so... Very few people know that story, <laughs> Quinty, You're uh, You're privileged to uh, to know that story, my friend. So friends. we're very lucky. Don't tell anybody, We're okay? lucky to have enjoyed Octagonal after the Cox Plate Then Yes. So he uh, he went to the paddock again and just came back and was just a power horse and he ran into uh, a little one called Saintly and it was obviously a big divide at their four-year-old career because Darren Beedman was probably the son that Jack and Bob Ingham didn't have and Darren went to Crown Lodge and sat down with Dad and Jack and Bob. Jack and Bob Ingham would always be at Crown Lodge, Monday morning, 9am to 5 minutes to 1, religiously, unless it was a public holiday or they were away on holidays, but 49 weeks of the year, you would see them at Crown Lodge, they went through all their horse stuff and then off they went. Darren Beeman rolls up, walks inside and had to break the news to them that Bard had said he had the uh, once in a lifetime horse named Saintly and... Darren was going to jump ship and go and ride uh, Saintly and not Octagonal. So it was a very, very big uh, rift in the camp that's, uh, you yeah, it's quite an amazing thing. You know, Beeman had to make the choice between two. I mean, they are two of the greatest ever. They're not great
1: horses. They're great, great horses. And they had some wonderful stashes on the racetrack as well, which we look back all these years later and the, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up watching it. Well, you didn't have two
0: great horses like that just going hammer and tong at each other. <clears throat> you saw winkses and you saw sunlines and a little bit sunline Row Nordley. Yep. There was three of them greats, but you know these horses were just you know fantastic. I mean, you know, Royston, which is a champion horse, New Zealand, and he came across Australia and he just couldn't get warm. Falante was another one that was there that ran second in a Canterbury Guineas, and they were just, it was a class of 92. And the class of 92, every horse born in 1992, we we, we, we had. We had B graders like Shames and Donars that were Group 1 winners and Encores was another horse that ran second in a Duman 10,000, the Stradbroke. If they were around today, there'd be multiple, multiple, multiple Group 1 winners. It was the greatest year of all time and it's amazing that the following year we didn't think we had much and our best two-year-old was a little bloke called Flavor. Well, he won his first five, I think he won, and uh, just got pipped in a blue diamond. That was when Caulfield had the uh, track done up and he ran up the straight and he got beaten, but... The class of '92 was the best group of horses that we've seen in the modern era. There's no doubt about
1: that. We loved Octagonal. He was a superstar. He won a Cox Plate. One day though, it didn't quite go to script. Tell it to us about the VRC Derby. Yeah, well, he'd, um, <clears throat> he
0: he uh, he was favourite in the in the Derby, and what had happened was that Darren Gauchi had fallen off in the uh, the first race. The uh, What's the first race derby days. The Mile it was always the three-year-old uh, Carbine Club, and he was riding encores, and he fell off course and uh, got carded off the hospital, Footscray Hospital, and this little unknown horse won that race, and his name was Saintly. Mm. And so Darren Goucher couldn't ride the big O in the derby. So Shane Scriven had been doing a lot of work for us, and there was – Probably back in the day, the best part about the Spring Carnival was you could just walk in and throw your uh, throw your silks to about one of about fifteen jockeys because you had the best in Melbourne, the best in Sydney, all there. And Shane Scriven was low flying; he was a high weight jockey, and he he got uh, thrown a bone. And it was that was one of my big pushes. I won't lie about that. And um, yeah, he rode that horse. Uh, I think his form would have read nought. Not fell pulled up. Quinny wasn't uh, wasn't pretty. He was trying to push out with D Oliver three deep on his outside and I reckon Damien might have even been on Catlin opening by uh, by memory and you don't uh, you don't get uh, to push out push D Oliver out uh, four wide come in the corner when Oliver's traveling so that's where he stayed and uh, nothing like a Dane beat, um, beat octagonal as that we we're in the mountain enclosure dad nine as they went across the post. And he got beaten. My father just turned around, never looked at me, just shook his head, put his head down and walked out. The, just left. Uh, walked out the mountain enclosure and anyone that knows Flemington, he turned right, he went up the back of the stairs, he could walk past the train line and walked out the back into Ascot Vale and just literally disappeared off into the sunset. And we still had runners for the rest of the day and he just disappeared. He just, he just left in disgust.
1: Gee whiz. So, so he doesn't that, normally react like that, John?
0: No. I mean, he's always been vocal and wears his heart in his sleeve, but he just couldn't believe that. So... Is another one for you, Quinny. That no one
1: knew, uh, <laughs> no one quite knew uh, what happened there. We loved Octagonal. He retires. He goes to stud, and one of his progeny ends up with you, a horse named Lonro, who is an equal superstar. He wins twenty six races from thirty five career starts. Talk to us about the day Little Loki came to the stables. Yeah, he. Uh, I, I remember
0: his brand number is three forty four over eight, and the year is uh, would have been two thousand and eight, or reckon it would have been and that's what the 8 stands for, the 08. And the 344, he was a 344th foal born, and I think he was born, like, uh, early December. So lots of his opposition had a couple of months head start on him, so he, he, but he wasn't a little ugly duckling. He was a big, strong, robust horse, and he walked in and right from the get-go. It's easy to sit back now after you're a star, but there was just something about him, and he was uh, – I think we had about thirty sons and daughters of Octagonal, but there was none like this bloke. He uh, he just walked in like he was the number one draft pick, and he knew it. He was he was different to his old man. His old man was a bit more uh, probably leave me alone. I'm don't really want the hoo ha. Whereas Lon Rowe was probably a, and Octagonal was kind, but just didn't want to be annoyed. Whereas Lon Rowe was quite happy for you to do pretty much anything with him, and he was uh, he was just a brute, an absolute brute, and. Uh, Got beaten his first start. We took him to the Strathair at uh, Kenzo, and he got beaten to a uh, hundred and one shot, and we couldn't uh, couldn't work out why. And he came to Melbourne. And he won a Blue Diamond Prelude by hundred yards. I think it was B Preble that rode phaser We won the Blue Diamond Prelude with the filly, so we had the colt and the filly win both preludes. And phaser had uh, had pulled up sore after the race, and uh, she went to the paddock and. Lonro, um, he was probably just a little bit jar in his shins, and we nursed him as much as we could to get him there. And he was great all week, but just when those gates opened, and he just let let go. He just couldn't let go, and he ran fourth or fifth in a uh, in a Blue diamond. So that was my uh, one of my first introductions of Lonro getting him beat. But
1: <laughs> gee, was uh, what a horse he was! So he dips his toe in the water as a two-year-old, but as a three-year-old, that's when he goes to the next level. He wins some of the biggest races, including the Caulfield Guineas. What was that journey like? Yeah, Caulfield Guineas was, was amazing. He uh, wasn't a
0: great ride by Darren Gouches. He was uh, – Des Gleeson. chief steward told me that he went out of the steward's picture at the half mile – as in wide. he mm. was on the outside fence at Caulfield, and if you look where he was in the in the replay, he was second last and just roared down the outside like he just joined in like black caviar at the furlong, and he was uh, he was a weapon. There's uh, there's there's no doubt about that. He was just a serious weapon, and he could um, well he, he could just about do anything, uh, Lonro. But uh, there was only one thing he couldn't do:
1: win at Moonee Valley. That's what he couldn't do. Yeah,
0: I you know. I reckon he. I reckon one of his greatest wins. Well, there was a couple of greatest, but one of his great wins was toe to toe against Sunline, and I think they smashed the track record, and they just went head and head, Bob of the Head like this all the way up the straight. And I think the third horse got. I think the margin was Bob of the Head by eight. And I remember Peter Hegley from Peter Hegney from William Inglis, the chief auctioneer, he walked up to me and said. Never done that in the race course before. I said, what's that? He said, well, I backed Sunline because she was in front and he was pegging her back, and then it was Bob with the head. Then when he went past the post first, everyone screamed, so I started screaming. (laughs) Then I realised I backed Sunline. I didn't care. He said I threw my ticket away. He said because racing was the winner.
1: And the way he raced as well, he came off the speed. He was this big jet black." Engine. It was just yep. so exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, he was, but he, he just couldn't go at Mooney Valley. And as I said off the top about him, his first run was at the Strathair at the Kenzo and he got beaten 100 to one shot. And we couldn't work out why, but he just didn't like that surface. I mean, one year it poured with rain and another year uh, Brian Martin's horse, um, Fields Goods of, of Omar. Omar. He ended up winning two Cox plates, Fields of Omar. So you don't flute one, let alone two. So anyone that had a doubter about Fields of Omar, he won two of them, but he just couldn't beat Northerly and Sunline and, you know, Beeman said he just didn't feel the same horse. He said getting back to Flemington, he'd go to Flemington, he'd win a McKinnon, he'd win a Caulfield Stakes, which is now a might and power at Caulfield. It just, just wasn't the same
1: horse. The thing that frustrates me a little bit, I love Lonro and he's an absolute superstar. His race record speaks for itself, but the two races that get discussed the most I do find are the Cox Plate where he got beaten and then his final career start in the Queen Elizabeth when he couldn't run down Grand Army. Does that irk you a little bit?
0: Oh, not really. I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's a bit like, uh, you know, Chautauqua and that sort of stuff. I mean, racing does finish with some great hoo-ha stories, but you know what? It's a horse race and uh, they certainly get beat. But I'm just thinking now the, uh, the Australian Cup, when Darren Beeman Fair drove him right at the backside of, uh, of another horse and he had to pull to the outside and he roared home and... It was quite interesting. Brendan Parnell was a Sky Channel boss, and he said to me, Is there any chance we could microphone you up? He said, You won't be live, but we just want to get it and grab it, and we were best mates, Brendan. And um, I said, Yeah, absolutely. I said, So let's do it. So they got me microphoned up, they got the camera on me, and uh, when that happened, and Lonro got, uh, you know, he sandwiched himself, literally. Obviously, the the magical four letter F word came out, so uh, they had to do some very very good um, engineering there and uh, take my yelling and screaming back to the race and whatever. It all worked out perfect for Sky Channel, but they just had to flick it off me for that uh, split second. I'd but,
1: like that footage and that audio because I can imagine what was going through your head oh, well, when he was, li- he was he was he was almost standing still. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, I remember science saying
0: "death taxes" and Lonro and they, uh, you know, there was, you know. There was, uh, you know, there was Cerise donuts given out like with octagonal and they'd, ha- they'd taken on a lot of the octagonal stuff and it was just a massive farewell in Victoria. And, yeah, Darren said he just felt the pressure that day. And one thing Darren Beeman doesn't do is he doesn't feel the pressure. He normally eats it, but he felt the pressure that day and the pressure did get to him. And he's only human and he admitted that, but he uh, he got up in the last possible stride and uh, won the Australian Cup. So, that was probably his swan song in all fairness and then that was nearly going to be his swan song and then Jack Ingham said, oh, well, we could run him in the Queen Elizabeth and you've only got inner Gaze and a few of those to beat and it was just having to back up again and inner Gaze did actually end up beating him and so it was the biggest farewell party since since the big O. It's uh, Ramwick and Lonro did get beat at his last race start. So, look, at the end of the day, the bottom line is where – Winks, not at her first half, dozen starts, but the back end of her career, and Black Caviar have changed the way people think. He is you have to win, win, win. And any horse that said it won its first three or four, everyone's up and about. It's not going to happen again where you're going to see horses like Winks. I don't even know what she won in a row, but it must have been 20 in a row or something like that. And obviously, the Great Mare, would she win 25 or 26 out of 26? So. She, uh, you know, that's the only minus with those two great horses. I think they're putting a bit too much expectations because no matter what code and what footy team you barrack for, there'd be hardly ever a team anywhere in the world that's won every match for the whole season. We have to get beat.
1: Now, Winx and Black Caviar, they were often too short to bet on. So a lot of racing fans would just enjoy watching them go round. Lonro was always in that sweet spot where he was short and he was a favourite, but he was backable. $1.50, $1.60, $1.50, $1.60, even money throughout his campaign. And he was the first horse I remember where the big punters stepped into him because he won more than he didn't. What was the pressure like knowing that so many people from your local tradie to the millionaires are having their biggest and maybe only bet on a Saturday on your horse? Yeah,
0: look, I remember being at Warwick Farm one day, and, and Jack and Bob literally owned two sides of the road at the stables. It was on two blocks of land. I mean, blocks, not just a street, it was two blocks. It's still there today. And a taxi driver pulled up and said, Go, mate. I said, Yeah, go, yeah, go. And he goes, Where's Lonroe? I said, Lonro? He goes, Yeah, I just come to see him. I said, Oh, mate, oh, gee, we're sorry, mate. He's, he's out the farm. He wasn't. He was in box 78 or – 78 or 79, 78 I think it was, where he always lived, but I wasn't going to be telling old mate that. So it was just, just amazing that, that, you know, sporting people just loved, uh, loved Octagonal. Then they grabbed his son Lonro as well. And I think them both being jet black probably, uh, you know, it's like the famous story, isn't it, the Black Stallion. If the Black Stallion was brown. It wouldn't probably be the same. But when you're jet black, there's just a bit of an aura and ear about you, isn't there? So – but uh, to have those two great horses, and you know, Dad thinks Octagonal was the best horse, and Darren Beeman thinks Lonro was the best horse. So, who does Wayne Hawks think? Um, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've you know what? No one's ever ever asked me that question. But uh, gee whiz, who am I to judge John Hawks and Darren Beeman? I'll just sit in the middle and say <laughs> they were they were both as good as uh, as good as each other. But yeah, they were, they were different types of horses. They certainly were. But I suppose. The difference was that, you know, you, you think Octagonal was beating the Saintlies and nothing like a Danes, but then Lonro was beating Northerlies and Sunlines when he, when he wasn't at the Valley. So the big guy did it everywhere. He won on seven tracks, and um, the only metropolitan track in Melbourne and Sydney that Octagonal didn't race at was Sandown but he ran on the seven tracks and he won on all seven because even Canterbury had the Canterbury guineas and Lonroe, well he couldn't go uh, he couldn't go on the Strathairn in Sydney and he couldn't go uh, Cox Plate Mooney Valley so if you look at it a champion champion just does it anywhere anytime so you'd probably have to give
1: it to octagonal Octagonal it's a great question it's good pub debate and it's well, it great because it's a positive is. one as well it's good we're talking about the superstars I find it fascinating that there were so many. Full brothers and sisters to Lonro, and none of them really did anything. The likes of Spikes and whatnot who had to go to Brisbane midweek to break a maiden and whatnot. It's incredible that Lonro was such a superstar, but then none of the other siblings got that ability.
0: Well, look, look at me. I mean, I'm bred in the purple with a million dollar pedigree. And Michael Hawks can run, and I've got no ability. So, I thought I'd just uh, put it out there and say it. <laughs> but what? It's,
1: it's just the it's just a little quirk,
0: isn't it? There's very few horses like uh, like Octagonal because. His brothers and sisters won. There was, there was probably ten or twelve of them, but but six of them were you know group group one winners. I mean, it's just a eight carrots, one of the greatest broodmares in the world, let alone New Zealand. So yeah, it didn't work with Lon brothers and sisters, and but you know we with Inghams because they 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 weren't predominantly buyers; they were more breeders. You'd see them come through every year and was quite amazing. It taught you a hell of a lot about breeding because some years they would come through and they'd be all different stallions out of the same mare and she just stamped them. Yeah. And then you see a lot of the same, you know, canny lads look like canny lads and the commands looked a lot like the commands and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, but, yeah, genetics, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it works because one amazing thing about uh, it's probably the same in the human as well as the horses. It's nearly always a 50-50 split, isn't it? It's never eighty percent colts one year and twenty percent Phillies because a race would die, you know, would die out. So it's always a 50-50. And yeah, the Lonroe brothers and sisters um, weren't, weren't worth a chop, were they? But you know what the end result is. We were lucky to uh, we we're lucky to have him. And there was a deal between uh, John Massara and Jack and Bob Bingham, and I don't know the intricates, but um, we uh, we end up getting um, four weanling colts three yearling fillies and three broodmares. One of the wheeling colts was Commands and uh, one of the broodmares was Shadaya and she'd won at Kingston Town and Jack and Bob sent Shadaya to Octagonal. So if John Massara had have uh, kept Shadaya, guarantee you, he wouldn't have sent that mare to uh, to Octagonal. So it's amazing how it uh, how it just works and they sent uh, Shadaya to uh, Octagonal and produced,
1: uh, as Greg Miles called him, Occy's little boy. Yeah, good quote there from Greg. and stuck in the hearts and minds of racing fans. So a sensational run. Now, for years to come, we see plenty of winners in the Cerise trained by John Hawks for the Ingham Brothers. It comes to an end in 2008. What happened?
0: Well, I was watching Larry King one night interviewing Jerry Seinfeld and and Larry said, mate, you're just worth a fortune. You, You were doing every episode for 25 million or thereabouts an episode. What happened? He said, Larry... Kill it before it kills you, <laughs> and I thought that was a great, great quote, and I never ever forgot that. And it wasn't killing Dad, but at the end of the day, the bottom line was fourteen years at the top of the tree was a hell of a, a hell of a long time to be giving hundred and ten percent, and there was no room for nothing. There was uh, it was um, the stables, the stables, the stables, and uh, Christmas Day happened to be on a Sunday that would have helped, but every other day was exactly the same, so. It was probably the stage where it was, you know, wasn't wearing thin, but Jack had, Jack had died and things had changed. Obviously, when Big Brother dies and then Bob's still there, things change a little bit. So training partnerships, um, my father actually spoke to uh, Des Gleeson and Brian Beatty at the time and asked about training partnerships starting in Australia and... Dad was a little bit disappointed that we weren't the first trainers to have the training partnership, but 100% was Dad going to Chief Steward and, uh, and CEO at the time asking about training partnerships. So he was the one that certainly started, I think, for the record, it was Colin and Cindy Alderson might have been the first training partnership, but Bobbingham wasn't entertaining, that sort of thing, and so Dad had thought, you know what, enough's enough and time, uh, you know, we've done our time and uh, everything would be great. Wouldn't have changed much. Probably just would have changed the, the big O. Would have run him in a Melbourne Cup, I reckon. Never never ran him in a Melbourne Cup, but you would have run him in a Melbourne Cup. He could, he could do anything. That would have been uh, – <laughs> it was your only regret. There was very few regrets, and you shouldn't have a regret, but if there was a regret, it would have been that, um, that Dad didn't want to run him over two mile because he – as he said, he said, no one remembers Atalak but in canny Last in the C Four Stakes and breaking the clock at uh, Sandown over 1,400. People only remember at Atalak for winning a Melbourne Cup. So Dad didn't want him tarnished when he went to start as far as a, a two-mile plotter for winning a Melbourne Cup. So that's, uh, that's where that
1: was. Isn't that bizarre that winning a Melbourne Cup would decrease his value at start?
0: Well, it's amazing that race because it's the race that stops the nation but it's the race that breeders want nothing to do with. You know, if you've got your, your great staying races in Europe, they'd give their left leg people to uh, to get involved in an Epsom derby. But uh, when you when you start winning derbies now and start
1: winning cups out here, people just don't uh, don't want you to start. Now, we've spoken about some of the superstars you trained. A superstar, but also a horse that cut through the racing narrative and sports fans loved him. Sports fans would talk about him. Sports fans knew all about him was Chautauqua. He won 13 of 32, which is sensational, but not the same level as Lon rowan Octagonal, but equally as famous. Talk to us about that wonderful and at times strange and at times frustrating star sprinter. Yeah, well, I was famously quoted um,
0: when I spoke to uh, Jason Richardson one day and I said, yep, yeah. I said, Chitakwa would be in the back of the bus licking windows. Now I look back and all these trainers were on the back of the bus <laughs> licking windows and Chitakwa <laughs> was driving the bus. That's uh, that, I- that is a fact, but... Yeah, look, I mean, he he, he was grey and he was a back marker and when he couldn't win, he did win and people just loved him because I th- if you looked at, you know, Winks to a point, Maccabi Saintly, Octagonal, those sorts of horses, those staying horses used to sit back and fly home and they could win and they could break track records, but no one can ever remember a sprinter doing what he's doing, so... You know, it's the, it's the 100 metres of the Olympic Games and you slow out the blocks. Well, you slow out the blocks, it's all over, my friend. So for Chautauqua to do what he did, the um, did he win? I think he got beat. No, he got beat in his first two starts. I think he won. Did he win at Sam- Seymour or just get beat to Nicky Burks? I'm not sure about that, but I know what he genuinely did was he was a dollar thirty pop and he went to Kite on Kite and Cup Day in the Maiden and they'd watered the inside or the outside of the track and, oh, that's where he came down, that part of the track and he got beat. But uh, he might have won his first start at uh, Seymour, I reckon. Then he got beaten on Kite and Cup Day, and we put him away. But he came back as a uh, what did he come back as a four year old, and and he uh, that's when he really started to uh, to pick up the ante. But he was a good horse. I remember we took him to the Scone Guineas, and he um, he ran in the Scone Guineas. He did won the Gosford Guineas. I think he won the Gosford Guineas, the Hawkesbury Guineas. We took him to Scone. D Dunn and I flew up from Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to Sydney to Scone on the plane and he burrowed his head under the gates. So this is where the barriers start, isn't it? He burrowed his head under the gates that day and was a bit of a bugger in the gates and they let them go. So there's Chautauqua out the back door and I sprayed D-Dunn from the time we got – come back to scale to the time we got back to Melbourne Airport. He didn't say goodbye. I can't believe why. But, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, it was uh, – yeah, he, he had those inklings and Chautauqua was his own man. The three TJ Smith victories, they were all absolutely spectacular. It's just incredible that he won from some of those positions. What was it like watching him over those final stages? It was was just just incredible. And you know what? You have to
0: give credibility to some of the race callers because if they don't give the great, great race calls, they're the ones that get you up and about at the 400-meter mark, really. If they're just null and void and just, yeah, here comes such and such. It doesn't have the same height, but when they really start to get into it at the top of the straight race callers, they they bring it home and Darren Flindell, when he won his third one, I think it was, and he just went, yes. Well, to quote Jared Whateley, Jared reckons it's the best three-letter word he's ever heard in sport, <laughs> yes, because he said it defines it, yes. You don't need to say any more because for the people that, you know, that were watching, we knew what had happened when, uh, when he'd won his third TJ, so to win three TJs. I, I don't know whether Nature Strip did. I know he won two. He, he, I think Nature Strip won three. Black Gaviar, I think, only ran in two. So the TJs obviously become a great, great race. And it certainly had his uh, – it was probably called a lesser name. I reckon it might have been changed to the Chautauqua Stakes, but uh, I don't think Chautauqua would be knocking TJ off his uh, off his mantle. But he was just a great horse. But then obviously he uh, – I don't know. No, We, we, we don't know. My father thinks that the hard gut busters that you're having week in, week out, and most of it was his fault. I mean, Tommy Berry said he's just an amazing horse to ride because Darren Beeben said to me one day, it is so wrong as a jockey because you would have to be push, push, push. To keep up to the last horse, but you know in your own mind you can't do that because then you won't finish off. So Beeman said he must have been a horrendously hard – this is D Beeman. must have been a horrendously hard horse to ride. In. So on the back of that, I asked Tommy Berry, and he said, well – he said, it's a bit." Like, Tommy's pretty cool and casual. He said, a bit like this. He said, oh, we're at the first half of the race. He said, I get the 600 and go, come on, old boy, let's go. we got a job to do here. And he said, it's as simple as that. He said, you just couldn't worry about him in the first half of the race because – Imagine if he had jumped and was running midfield. Match if he was closer. You know, I mean, I think in all-age stakes one day he was, um, he, he was bottled up on the fence running about six or seven. Well, of course, he never got out, did he? Mm. So uh, even when he raced on the pace, he didn't uh, didn't get the chance to get out. But he was just a freak of freaks and non-racing people really actually warmed, uh, warmed to him, which was great for the sport.
1: I love it when Australian horses race overseas because it's almost like you've got the whole nation cheering <clears throat> yeah. for a sporting team. You go to Hong Kong to contest the Chairman's Sprint. It was an unbelievable victory. He was literally not in the vision. Talk to us about being trackside to watch him charge down the outside under Tommy <clears throat> Berry for victory.
0: Well, it was uh it was was tw- was 30 minutes before the race and they're racing in Hong Kong every half an hour and they're all on course the horses literally live after the winning post so at they as soon as the horses go out in the mountain, out into the track for the race before they bring the next horses in well as chitakwa was rolling in with all the others they went past the winning post in theory and so he lost his marbles so he was after muck lather because he was always pretty good at the races and he lost he lost his marbles and like you know, th- I mean, this is a story in itself. I mean, Brenton Abdullah had nothing to do with the horse, but he's mates with my brother and st- was a stable rider, and he just got in the plane on the Saturday night just to be there Sunday to go and see this horse race. And so, what happened was, uh, Michael said, "I'll stay with the horse" because Michael had been with the horse the whole time. Brett McDonald was the girl that rode him, and she was ready to get on the plane that day on the Emirates plane with um, with the horse, and they rang up and said she can't travel with the horse. So why? I said, well in nineteen sixty two there was another Brit McDonald that had an international uh, question mark against her name from like a, you know, FBI, CIA, come whatever, and there's a there's a, you know, question mark, so we're not they're not allowing her to go with the horse. What? True story, yeah. So Michael rang me and said, Oh I've got to go with the horse. I said, good luck, brother. I said, I hope he's better in the plane than what he is because he'd never been in the plane. I said, I hope he's better in the plane than what he is in the barriers. As a brother would just give a little left jab and (laughs) thought, wow. Michael C never moved a muscle. He said he was a freak. It was a combi plane, so it was half uh, half seats, <clears throat> half um, half cargo. He was right behind the wall, so to speak, and Michael kept walking and out to see how he was, never raised a sweat. Michael said he was amazing. Michael said, I think he, Michael said himself, I think he got four or five hours sleep himself on the plane for the nine hours to Hong Kong. So he travelled enormous, did everything so, so well. Everything was fantastic until he got into the literally out the back in the parade ring. Michael said, you go and get the saddle, I'll stay with him. Michael then rings me and goes, get your backside. That's AKA for worst words, I can't tell you now, but brother to brother in code. said, so get your backside back here because it's, it's all hell's breaking loose. So I clearly remember it as like, like I'm sitting here with you now and – Walked down the stalls and Dad just standing over the rail, literally slumped over the rail, shaking his head. I'm thinking, this is not good. I get down and I said, what happened? Michael said, well, we put him in the box because there are sort of boxes there. They're not stalls but same, same but different. And he's turned sideways and he's pulled his back shoe off. So down came the farrier. Well, three of us, were d- Dad said, Michael one side, I the other, and Brit hanging onto his head. He was throwing us around like, you know, we were flies on a scarecrow. And, uh... Finally got the shoe back on him, good as gold. Wow. This is like 20 minutes before the race. The horse said, just go and give him a walk. Let him just relax for a minute. Don't care. Who cares if we're late? Britt walked him forward, just turned Right went whack, ripped the same shoe off again. You're kidding me. This all happened. So no one knows about this because it wasn't on footage, it wasn't on camera, no one could see any of this. So, you know, the stewards and everyone could and we could. And I clearly remember looking over there and there was Dad slumped over the rail and Brenton and is stand next to him, patting John Hawks on the back going, it's okay, boss, we'll be right, we'll be right. I can imagine Dad going, get off me, leave me alone. <laughs> but he didn't. Um, we couldn't get him we, – we got him back in the box and he was just out of control. I said, just go and walk him out, out there again. And he took two steps outside the box and then he stood there. I said, oh, mate, come and chuck it on here. He stood out in the middle of the open, stood there, went bang, 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 replayed him, put the plate on, was good as gold. Walked back in, shouted him up, out there he went. What so
1: what ha- were you thinking? What was your confidence yeah. levels like then?
0: So it is the absolute rule of thumb for uh, – I know from a trainer's point of view, when that happens – you're off. You're done. It, it just it just don't work. You know the old replatting behind the barriers yep. and ah, oh, I'll throw my ticket away and you're just thinking all oh, that same sort of stuff. And I just kept thinking, wow, we've been here for two weeks and you couldn't have asked it to go any better. Never left a note. Never, never, not a blemish. Couldn't fix anything more if you had the you know if you were if you were God. Get there with thirty minutes before the race and it all just turns to custard. So. We're behind the gates, and we stood on top of the uh, the winners' stall, and there was a little TV like over here in the corner. So Michael said, "We'll all watch it here." I don't know where. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the old boy was, but uh, most of us were standing there. So what happens is the race is off, and he's out the back as he does. They come around the corner. He's there. All of a sudden, he goes out of the, out of the, out of the screen. And Michael's turned to me and said, "Oh," I said. We've got one TV and we're watching must be watching the steward's footage or something. Cause he's gone out of the uh, he's gone out of the TV, hasn't he? Gone out, gone out, can't see him, can't see him. And we are dirty as thinking we've got thousand TVs on a race course and we're watching the wrong TV. All of a sudden went, Phew! And then he won and we looked out and there he was going past us live. I mean, you could i I've at goosebumps now, just just talking about it. It just feels like it was yesterday. And so we genuinely thought we were watching a, a TV screen of a steward's Patrol footage, not watching the real footage, and Tommy said he was just unbelievable. He said he just straightened up and was going good, and they just went lickety-split out in front, and which they always do in Hong Kong generally, and he just ate it up and he just roared down the outside. So that was a moment in itself, and then what happens on International Day for all the winning connections, the 100-piece band, it is dead set 10 by 10, 100-piece band plays the national anthem of the winning countries. So when, when Advance Australia Fair came on, all the Aussies that were there literally come running down to the, to the, to the, uh, you know, to the winning, winning post and everyone sung Advance Australia Fair and Winfred Ingleford brex has been the boss of Hong Kong Jockey Club for forever, said, I've been here every year for forever and I've never, ever seen people run down from their own nationality and just cheer the horse home and sing the national anthem, so... It was a phenomenal thing and then that's when the Aussie part kicked in that you were, you know, you didn't go there representing Australia, you were representing yourself, but to end up uh, doing something like that was special. And um, one child that night, uh, we certainly represented Australia uh, in, uh, in fine form that night. It was uh, an amazing trip and I, you know what, to be involved, in, be involved in a couple of slippers in my own right and, you know, half a dozen with Ingham's and stuff. The, the trip to Hong Kong was the best of the best because you'd taken a horse away and just got the job done overseas and... We know how hard it is having sta- used to have stables, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. But when you're travelling horses overseas, it, uh, you know, it showed me with the Melbourne Cup horses for them to do what they did when they used to come out here back in the day, starting with vintage Crop. What a, an amazing, amazing performance from the trainer, the staff and the racehorse.
1: It was an absolute superstar, Chetakwa, and that was a very special day for Australian racing and even more special for Team Hawks. Just to add the little quirk to the nature, though, the end of his career where he literally wouldn't partake and there's some great footage of the jump outs and he wouldn't jump out and they flash to you and you just shrug. Like, what do you do? We still don't know why he did that, why he stopped participating. It was even more bizarre that one barrier troll he did then get going and was enormous, so he clearly didn't lose any ability. He just didn't want to race anymore. If you had him at the farm or you had him, you know, out in the middle of Flemington
0: or at Rose Hill, out he jump as soon as it became, it was only once official where he went in the gates and out he jumped and that's when he went enormous that day. But he just knew. He genuinely just knew and I suppose it was him just saying, I've had enough. enough. You know, I mean, it was just, it was like that uh, movie Stripes, wasn't it, with the zebra and, he, you know, the gates open, he's kicking the hell out of it and it just was going nowhere. So it was, uh, well, it was sort of embarrassing to be fair because I'm you're just thinking, wow. But then it got to the stage where it sort of got a bit comical really. And uh, I never forget the day at Mooney Valley, and um, when he was—that was—that was the end of it. And the press was was standing around. It was like uh, it was like the opposite of Bart winning his twelfth Melbourne Cup, where they're all standing around trying to get interviewed. Though I, was, I said the dad and Rupert Lee and all the owners I said, "I better go and face the music." Dad, being <laughs> Dad, said, well, you you talk better than me. You better go over there and, well, I just what can you say? What can you do? It was it was better to have known him than to have never had him. But he was what he was, and. Uh, is he a different cat? 100% he is, but I suppose that's the uh, the legacy of Chautauqua and, you know, you look at Black Caviar that was almost perfect and it nearly didn't happen at Royal Ascot and whatever. I mean, there's no such thing as the the perfect, but, yeah, Chautauqua, he was uh, – people loved him and hated him, but then they loved him. It's quite amazing, wasn't it? You know, he just had such a such a great following and, you know, he was so good for uh, for horse racing, but – it doesn't work this way, but imagine if he had a jumped from barrier three and lobbed in the box seat, he would have won by the length of the would've straight. He would have changed the rules. I know, I, know, I, know, I know it doesn't work that way, <laughs> but uh, would have been would have been amazing to see him just be a normal racehorse for a while.
1: Now everyone had a theory on why he wouldn't jump out of the barriers. What yeah. were some of the strangest oh. theories you heard, and some of the suggestions people <clears> were giving you?
0: Yeah, no, we had plenty of uh, plenty of help, advices for free, and everyone loves giving it. I find. But uh, one guy rang up, and he's probably going to watch this and say it was me, but I don't remember his name, but he rang up and he said, I'm from uh, northern Queensland. He said, I can fix this horse. I said, right. He said, I'll just – he said, you can come up. He said, I'll clear the spare the – crew, he said, you can come up. He said, I'll clean, clear the spare room out for you as well. He said, just let me have a week with him. He said, I'll ride him up the top of that bloody hill. He said, he'll jump out the gates, my friend. He said, I said, Ride up the he goes, yeah, but I've got a few other knacks. I said, listen, I said, we're not, we're not doing anything untowards or anything cruel or anything like that. I said, it's not what we're about. I mean, we didn't get there and whip him with stop whips and do all that sort of stuff because we just, you didn't do it. You're a horse person and if he's telling you he didn't want to do it, he didn't want to do it. Simple as that because, as I said, practice, practice, he was perfect. So, yeah, so old mate said, I'll ride him to the top of the hill and back every day. He said, I'll sort him out for you. But um, we had so many phone calls, emails, letters, messages. It was uh, – and genuine people saying, I think I've got it. You know what I mean? It's uh, I remember when Octagonal had his, uh, came back at his early four-year-old career and he just didn't fire a shot. He did in the Underwood. He, he didn't fire a shot and he did in the Underwood and – I mean, one bloke telling me, you don't understand, he said he's a diabetic. He said, just cut all the sugar out of him and, you know, I mean, it's just, as I said, advice is for free and everyone <laughs> loves giving, but I'm not bagging the people because people genuinely were wanting these great horses to do what they did, but they're animals and Someone said to me one day, would you like to know what Chitakwa thinks? I thought about it for a second. I said, no, don't think I would.
1: <laughs> Might hurt my feelings. Well, I'm not sure. Well, I know, <laughs> I know what he would have thought of me
0: and uh, and everyone else because uh, that was that was clear. Funny horse, you know. I remember remember Francesca Kimani. They said, can she come down and for Channel 7 do an interview before a uh, a Dali or one of those sorts of things? And she just, well, I said, he's quiet. He's no problem. She said, Oh, hey, good, good. He walked in the box, spun his backside to her. He didn't go to kick her or nothing, but he, that was just him. He just, he just had no interest. My daughter would stand on the manure bucket and she'd stand there. She was only this big and she'd stand on the bucket. Come on, Chautauqua, come on, mate. No, no, just had no he just turned his backside to you and just look the other way. He was uh, he was certainly a, uh, a loner.
1: I'd love to get two things after this. The audio of you watching Lonro in the Australian Cup. It's there somewhere. And all the emails that came through, the suggestions how to fix Chautauqua
0: yeah you know this uh do you, you think you think back it's like a remember when isn't it but, uh, <laughs> the uh yeah it's you know what racing's been good racing's been very very good to me and my family and uh, my family and I should I say but uh yeah the the highs and the lows, but you know what with, with having the highs was one thing, but having the lows certainly kept you grounded and yeah, would it, would I have wanted chautaqua to to finish in a blaze of glory not really because he is what he is and he was what he was and he decided his own fate, not us. So he retired He retired unharmed, unhurt, and uh, and, and and happy that he didn't get to go out and keep competing because maybe he was just telling you, I didn't want to do it. I don't know. I'm, no one's really
1: seen this happen before, and we probably won't see it happen again, will we? No, probably not. Hopefully we don't because it was just such a strange scenario, but he was oh, a I wonderful I thought it was pretty funny some days. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell the media that, but some days I was,
0: uh, I was giggling, and uh, right at that time I was on racing.com on a – new show called After the Last that Shane Anderson has set up and that was not much fun walking in and uh, good evening folks, it's Shane Anderson, we'll go straight to Wayne Hawks and well I couldn't
1: hide, I generally couldn't hide but you know what, people made up their own mind about Chautauqua. Well, you and Team Hawks have done an amazing job. You've won so many big races. You've won two Golden Slippers, 2014 Moss Fun, 2018 Estejar. But the final horse I want to ask you about is a horse named All Too Hard. He won seven of 12, including that famous Caulfield Guineas over Piero. He was a blue blood and he was a superstar. Yeah, he was. He was the uh, the
0: top price horse of the William Inglis sales. And Nathan Tinkler bought him. And I remember it was his first start in the talent Dirt, And I rang him a day before and he... I said, g'day, how you going? He said, don't worry about how I'm going. He said, uh, is this the horse I've been waiting for all my life? What do you say to an owner of that that's poured <laughs> in squillions of dollars and hasn't had the success that he'd hoped to have? And that was the quote. Is this the horse I've been waiting for all my life? And uh, I said, well, I think he is. He's, uh, he's done everything right and, you know, he, you never know until race day. So he won that. He won the uh, VRC Sires and... He ran in the, uh, the Pago Pago because we were never going to run him in the slipper. Well, can't say never, but it just wasn't going to probably work. And I remember being at home. I was living in Ascot Vale at the time and I was in Melbourne and he was running in Sydney and, and he just and he bolted in and I just thought to myself, there wouldn't be another bloke that trains a horse this good that wouldn't be at the races on that day, but I didn't have to because i got a brother and a father in Sydney and I always remember that about all too hard and... He, uh, he didn't run in the uh, didn't run in the sires and uh, sorry he didn't run in the slipper and he ran in the size and just got beaten to his nemesis Piero. So they came back in the uh, in the uh, spring and we'd run him in a couple of shorter races and he just you know Snitcheland was beating him and running home in thirty two and thirty three and change. I mean she was pretty good mare, a pretty good filly should I say? And so the knockers routed him straight away. And to be honest, Nathan Tinkler said let's go and run him in the uh, the spring champion. Dad said no 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 no. We'll still go to the Corfield Guineas because if you win a Spring Champion, it doesn't have the same who are as the Corfield Guineas. And don't worry about Piero; let's just take him on full noise. And probably well, I think it was Nash rode Piero that day. I think, and it wasn't it wasn't a great ride by Nash. He probably was a little bit unlucky not to a one. Let's let's uh, let's be totally honest about that. And but uh, down the outside we went, and then all too hard went to the uh, he went to the uh, to the next level, didn't he? And there wasn't much he couldn't do, and. Probably my, one of my greatest times with All Too Hard, it was a bad time, was it was 5.50 in the morning. and Dad said I didn't want to work All Too Hard too early on race day. It was $1. thirty favourite for the Australian Guineas. And he had a mortgage on it. And um, Furlax ended up winning the race that year. No one remembers Furlax, do they? Nope.
1: No, that was a setback for the punters.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and what happened was it was 5.50 in the morning and phone rang. It was Dad. He was in the stables. I was out clocking horses and he said... That horse has got a temperature. I said, what horse? What horse do you think? And then there was silence and I just hung up. Jeez. So he, his temperature was only 30 38 normal. 38's normal for a horse. When you get to 38.5, that's when you start to question. He was 38.9. Licked the bin, bright as, everything was spot on. The vet came down. We scoped him, so we put the endoscope down his uh, nose to check out his wind. He was clean. He had nothing wrong with him. We we scratched him. We ran bloods. He was perfect. No, no one knows why. Just for that right moment, his temperature was what he was. So he had uh, nine weeks between. I think it was the uh, he won the Futurity in the CFO, and then he was going back to his three-year-old. So he'd run two weight for age, you know, Group Ones, and was going back to three-year-old set weights. That's why he was about a dollar thirty. So he didn't run. It was nine weeks between runs, and then he won the uh, All Aged a's, as his uh, as his final run. And Danny O'Brien walked past me and said, uh, "One of the greatest training performances I've ever seen, John Hawks pull off." And I always remember that. And uh, you don't get many uh, many raps from uh, from opposition trainers. And Danny said, "One of the greatest efforts ever. Nine weeks between runs for a colt to end like that." So he won the uh, he won the All Aged, and I was, and Vinry had bought him. After uh, oh, at some stage, and had valued the horse at twenty six million dollars. Oh, no, they bought him in the autumn because he only had three starts of finery and he won them all. Mm. He won the uh, the CFO, the All A the Futurity, and then he won the All age So there I am uh, standing on the podium with uh, Jerry Harvey from Harvey Norman Fame, and he he whispers across while the speeches going, and goes. How much was it for first? I said, as if you care. You don't need the money. Don't worry
1: about it. I'm the one that needs the money. And he just looked and went, oh, just asking. There was a bit of controversy in that all-age stakes. Was that when you beat More Joyce? Yeah, I, th- yeah,
0: I think it was. He, uh, yeah, it was a yeah.
1: – Singo wasn't too happy that day. No, he wasn't too happy that day.
0: It was a day him and Gay, I think, went uh, toe-to-toe, <laughs> didn't they, after, the, uh, after yeah. the last, and there was a –
1: Bit of a bust up, but they got back together and life's good again. All's well ends well. Now, we've loved having a chat to you. You've been so entertaining and informative. I just want to end with a question that people always ask me how it works, and I've said, I don't know. I'll ask Wayne. Someone wants to buy a horse. What's the process? From a yearling. They want to get involved. Yes. Someone says, I've got. You know. Yep. Two hundred thousand. Yep. How does it happen?
0: Well, what I would suggest to people is go to your trainer. Go to your trainer and ask them because if you're going to if you're going to go to your trainer, you might as well put all their, your eggs in one basket with the trainer. And if you had say two hundred thousand, I would advise you to buy four shares in four horses. Spread your spread your eggs. How much do all those people own percentage wise in Black Caviar? You Not a lot. But you, but you don't know. That's the answer. So the bottom line is if you own 2% or you owned 100%, you'd obviously want to own 100%, no doubt, when you know how good they are. But you better have to have a small piece in four pies because <clears throat> it's not easy. You know, one, one day an owner said to me, it's a, it, it's not an easy game for an owner. You might get four runs a prep and you have two preps a year. So you only get eight cracks at the cherry and he's right. So I would suggest that you just, you know, go to your trainer and say, what have you got for sale and um, pick out the one that you want and, uh, and just, you know, Put, put your eggs in, uh, in multiple baskets, obviously. Different now. You know, back when I was a kid, most people raced them one out, whereas that doesn't happen uh, happen anymore. Most of them are smaller, smaller shares and, and syndicates, but um, it's a great industry and you see people like us go off and lose our you-know-whats when you win – if I ever did a sportsman's function or something like that, they say, what's it like? And I always say, it's the best fun I've ever had with my clothes on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can you think of a time when an owner's just been so happy and so wonderful to deal with that the win has meant even more because of how great they've been?
0: Um, Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, some owners like to have a bet. Other owners just don't like to bet. So... People get their big thrill out of winning races and, and it doesn't matter whether the race at or McCanker or a group one at Flemington, we all want to win at Flemington and Ramwick and those places, but owners are just happy to win anywhere. That's one thing that I've always found, that they can make a hell of a story about the bungalow picnics if they really, really want to, uh, to make a story out of it, so... Racing's, uh, it's got some amazing tales and and things like that that you could talk about for uh, for forever, but, you know, if people haven't been involved in racing a horse and you get to race a horse, people genuinely are smart, clever, you know, in their own business. They put their owner's hat on and they just do some crazy things, folks. (laughs) Hello to any of my owners watching. But that's the truth. They they just put their pumpkin hat on and just do the most weird and wonderful things. And it's so good to stand back and to watch because you can't imagine the thrill of the kill of them winning that race. And then some owners breed these horses. So they've, you know, deciding what mare, you know, you're the mare to send to that stallion and the long, slow process that takes to get to a racetrack. So it's, uh, yeah, not one size fits all I find
1: with uh, with that. You've had so many wonderful, wonderful owners along the way. But has there been a few times where the owners and you have seen differently and you've said, look, maybe go elsewhere?
0: Yeah, that, that I remember one clear day that uh, that was going to happen. Um, horse had come down from Sydney over the spring carnival and Dad said, categorically, it's running there on that day. A couple of the owners said, oh, why would you run it there? Why wouldn't you run somewhere else? And he said, well, he said, I'm training it and I reckon it'll win that and it'll go on and win its next race. And they went, Ugh, and then they, yeah. And so you knew who was right. Then that horse came out in the uh, in the autumn and won a, uh, won a group one. Silence, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> each and uh, e- e- each one of their own or whatever the uh, the saying goes. But, um, look, no no one's right and no one's wrong in this game. I mean, it's, it's easy. It's funny how everyone has a voice after the race. Not many people speak up before the race, to be fair. Everyone's an expert after the winning post, but, you get any football match, no matter whether it's soccer, rugby, Aussie rules.
1: Everyone's an expert, aren't they? How hard is it when a horse gets taken off you? I can think about Northern Meteor, who you did all the hard work with, and then Goury took the horse, went to Gay Wardhouse, went bang, 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 and won a Coolmore.
0: <clears throat> yeah, we had, that was straight after we'd uh, we'd left Ingham's. and um, We had Real Saga that was our first winner, that was one of the favourites in the Golden Slipper, and we had Wanted and um, Northern Meteor in the box as well. So you had two great Colts and... Yeah, that was, a, that was a tough six months. It certainly was. You, you left Ingham's without a head collar. Didn't own a head collar. To have to go and start up again and it was through no fault of our own. It was um, <clears throat> they just decided to take the horse and Gay just got him right in the day and he won. Then he won the Coolmore Northern Meteor and Eddie Haston decided to take wanted office at the, uh, the wrong time and he went on to win a new market handicap. So... It was uh, – that was certainly uh, not bitter, but, you know, you're just very, very disappointed that you, you don't own the horses in fairness. I mean, you're, what are you – you're just a manager, aren't you? I suppose a horse trainer's a manager in real, in real terms because you don't own it. You don't own it. You're just managing it to the best of your ability. So when you had two horses there that were sitting there right from day one of leaving Ingham's. They were uh, two pretty hard horses to uh, to replace, but yeah, you know what, that's a bit of a low light, but there's not many low lights in, uh, in my career.
1: No, and you've had some wonderful horses join the stable as well. Now, you've trained for some of the biggest names in Australian racing, so surely after winning some of these big races, there's been a little well done, Wayne, and here's something for you. Talk to us about a sling you've copped along the way. I, re- I reckon the best one
0: was uh, was the
1: day uh, we were in Brisbane and we are staying at
0: the stables uh, that we were just... You know, it was a, We didn't have the stables at that stage, and it was in the Ingham days. And Jack Ingham said to Dad, "Oh, we'll go back and look at the uh, look look at the horses after uh, after the race." And Dad said, "Oh, and you really want to do that?" "Yeah, I do." So, because the stables were, you know, compared to what we had, would be great facilities, but you can only get what you could get, and they were lovely and clean and everything. But they were just very, very old, should I say? So I remember it clearly. We, um, what had happened was the morning. Of the race, Jack and Ingham and Dad flew in on the uh, the Ingham's Learjet. Jack got there and said, uh, "Their positions, uh, favourite in the Qantas Cup, and the Qantas Cup was the sad day before the Stradbroke was a twelve hundred meter race." He said he's favourite for the uh, for the Qantas Cup, and um, my track rider Warren said, "Oh, boss, overpitch is going better than him." I said, "Shut up with you." (laughs) So what, Jack spun around and said, excuse me? And I said, yeah, I said, um, their position's 9-2 to favourite for the Qantas Cup, but had won a 2MW, uh, which was a two-metropolitan win race, on a Sunday at Rose Hill. And he went to Queensland, and he was 33-1. to one, And he just absolutely just went into state and just flourished and went whoosh. And so... Um, Jack Ingham's got the favourite in the race, and he walked along the betting ring and um, wiped out the bookmakers and fair on wiped out the tote and over pitch one of course. It's uh, thirty four dollars and change, and I still this is honest gospel. I still remember walking through the um, I think it was like the last race of the day, and I still remember walking through and Jack's wife Sue was stuffing money into her. Uh, they were the cash days, and he wanted the cash. Was stuffing money into her uh, into her purse, and I thought, well, how good's this? So uh, Jack says, oh, I want to come back to the stables and see the horse and see the boys. And because we probably had, we had 10, we, we had a carnival that year. We won 12 stakes races and we won the Derby. We won the Oaks that year. We'd, uh, we'd annihilated them, to be fair. So Jack was in a good mood, obviously, and came back to the stables. We're all waiting out the front. The stretch limousine pulls up. Jack and everyone, my mum and his wife, everyone gets out the car and in the stables we walk. And why kick cow's there and um, all these horses and. Jack says, jeez, Johnny, it's uh, not like home, is it? He said, no. He said, I think we need to buy it. This is true. He said, I think we need to buy our own stable. So the very next year they, they went and bought, um, was, uh, he bought the stable off Tommy Smith, I think, and um, they half knocked it down. They called it Tenor Lodge after our Group 1 winner of the Queensland Derby that year, Tenor. And Jack said, uh, boys, well done, Warren. Good from you. Jack, big man, tailored suits pulls out the biggest wad of grey nurses. Now, the people that don't know, the grey nurses were nicknamed for the $100 notes, and he had a wad like this all folded over, $100 notes. There was thousands. I don't think I'd ever seen so much cash in my hand. And he went, what, wrong pocket. Put his hand back in his pocket, pulled it out, pulled out a ream of 20s and gave me $10, $20 and said, son, take the boys for a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm looking, this is true, as I'm looking at Jack Ingham, Dad's standing behind Jack Ingham and doing the – you say one <laughs> thing, you are in big trouble. <laughs> Thank you, Mister Ingham. Thank you, Mister Ingham. Thank you, Mister Ingham. And out he walked back to the stretch limo, back on his Learjet, and you should have seen—we danced it like the helium balloon with a pin in it. And went <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable! Anyway, that was my one and only sling from Jack Ingham. Two hundred bucks at the Hamo Hotel at Racecourse Road lasts about four and a half shouts, I think. And that was when I reckon pots were, you know two bucks a pot. That oh, was the my poor best my, my best sling, <laughs> tipping a thirty four dollar winner in a lead up to a Stradbroke. And they, oh, I swear, they cleaned out. They cleaned out the bookies and the tote that day.
1: <laughs> the poor track rider. You must have thought Christmas had come early,
0: mate. When when he pulled that white out, I thought, hallelujah, here we go, brother." It'll <laughs> be one for me, one for him, and one for her. No, wrong. And the quote was, "Oops, wrong pocket." <laughs>
1: You've got to name a horse oops, wrong pocket.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. I never <laughs> never really thought about that. Uh,
1: Braced in to... the cerise. How good. This has been a brilliant chat. We've absolutely loved it, Wayne. We're going to end with one question that everyone listening will have their pen poised for. Can you give us a horse to follow over the spring? Yeah, everyone wants to, always wants to ask that question. It's certainly never easy.
0: You know, we had Airman and Tivo that both won at Flemington a couple of months ago, and they look pretty promising. There's, there's one called Coca Cabana. He's uh, he's had a race start in Sydney and things didn't quite go right for him, but he might be some chance in a uh, in a Caulfield Guineas, and he certainly won't be uh, won't be on anyone's uh, radar until now, that's for sure. But we don't have a star on the stable, probably the first time that we don't because we sort of left all too hard into brutal into Ole Kirk, and we haven't had a uh, we haven't had one since Ole Kirk, as far as I mean, Mask Crusader. Yes, but we haven't really had one there that's a top top-notches so we've got a lot of lovely young really nice horses so we're going to have a quite a good spring i reckon from a low base we're not going to we're not going to shoot the lights out because we can't with the numbers but i think we've got some really really nice horses and as i said a lot of young horses with with uh, certainly some potential and if you know me there's no mayo on that so we genuinely do have some some quite nice young horses that uh, that'll hopefully step up with the plate Wayne, we've loved having a chat. Thank you so much. Quinny, the
1: pleasure was all yours. Hey lads, a guy in the community says he's keen on the rougher in race 7. Do we trust him? Well, his username is BigStatsGuy. Say no more. Connect with a community of like-minded punters. Only in Labros communities. T's and C's
0: apply and available on website. What are you really gambling with?